19 last year, or this year, I should say. So, Fourth of Feb. But I know he's got an amazing message for us. He's a man of genuine heart, a great courage, and tells a lot of great jokes as well. So let me pray for you, Don, and I'll give you the floor, mate. <laughs> I'm sure you've got a couple. Lord, we just want to thank you for our Don because he is an incredible man of God. He's inspiring, he's courageous, and he's a good bloke, Lord. And we really thank you that he's part of St Albans today. So I ask, Lord, you'll give him the words and the heartfelt messages that we need to hear today. In your precious name, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, church. Um, Before we get underway, um, first of all, I'm going to put my neighbourhood trust hat on and say a massive thank you to the many ice cream containers with lids and eggshells and coffee grounds and newspapers and things that were given during the week. Um, We have so many ice cream containers and lids that we'll be doing worm farms for lots of people over a very long period of time. And it also does tell me quite a bit about the ice cream eating habits of the church. (laughs) Um, So just just very briefly, talk to the person next to you. What's your favourite ice cream? <laughs> All right. I'm going I'm to ask you another question, but this one doesn't actually need much in the way of discussion. Um, but has anyone ever heard of liquid mountaineering? No. One. Excellent. Watch this clip, it'll tell you all about it. We're in Portugal with some extreme sportsmen who are about to repeat a feat from about 2,000 years ago. Yes, this man is about to walk or run on water. You think they're just going to sink, but they keep going and it looks like they're walking on the surface of water. With almost 13 and a half million hits so far, this uploader inspired many copycats. But are they heroes or hoaxers? We asked Philip and Hugo, the video's makers. We came up with this film called Lake of Mountaineering, um, and it's a hoax. It's fake. We created it. Yeah, it was a viral video for a sportswear company. But could someone actually run on water? These guys claim that they can do it because their running speed is so fast that it's just like skipping a stone across water. And it's definitely true that if a human foot or a human hand was to slap water really hard, you actually feel a reactionary force. The problem is the water pushing upwards has to counteract the weight of the human pushing down. The only way you can do that is by having enormous feet or running really, really fast. These guys aren't succeeding at either of those. Consider that Usain Bolt, the fastest man who's ever lived, only runs at something like 10.4 meters per second. These guys need to run three times faster than the fastest man on Earth in order to pull this off. So if it is impossible, how did they pull it off? Well, the trick of running on water, the way we filmed it, was not done by computer, but it was done for real, with a, a platform just below the surface of the water. It was a floating platform. So if the, he puts, uh, the runners put a step on the platform, it would wobble a bit, would move, and that gave us the illusion of actually stepping on, like, moving water as opposed to stepping on a platform. 
and uh, at the end of the platform, as you can see in the video, it just stops, they fall in the water. There we go. So mountaineering certainly has its challenges, right? Um, not that I've really done anything uh, in that vein, but if you talk to the likes of, I guess, Paul Yeoman or Graham Alexander, they'll tell you there's a lot of um, challenging things involved in that. Um, so the passage we're looking at today, um, there are a number of challenges being faced by the people in it, and Jesus obviously isn't phased by the challenge of liquid mountaineering. Uh, not needing extra large feet, or speed three times out of Usain Bolt to master walking on water. Um, and just, just to focus on that point, it speaks to the mastery of God over creation. Um, from a, hu a human, scientific point of view, it is physically not possible unless you meet those other criteria they talked about. But Jesus isn't governed, governed by what he created. He is the creator, and if he can speak it into being, he can most certainly command it to obey him. Let's pray before we read the um, passage. God, speak to us today. Show us um, how you want us to, to move forwards in, in, in things that, that involve chaos and, and those kind of things around our lives. We open our hearts and our ears to you today. Amen. So the passage is Matthew 14, verses 22 to 36, and if it hasn't become obvious already, it is about Jesus walking on water. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, Tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and, beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat... The wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick touch, just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. Now, I've heard a number of sermons preached on Peter and it, it focuses on his sinking because he looked at his circumstances instead of keeping his eyes fixed on Jesus. But today I want to focus on a, a slightly different aspect of that, and that is looking at these people through Jesus' eyes in the story. Knowing the context of the situation brings a deeper appreciation 
of what he was dealing with and how he handled what was happening around him. And we've heard it said from here many times before that context is so, so important. So there's a couple of things that most likely had an impact on what Jesus was doing at this particular time. In the first 12 verses of Matthew, John the Baptist has been killed by Herod. And remember that John was Jesus' cousin, a forerunner who was preparing the way for Jesus. And John's ministry ushered in the ministry of Jesus. So Jesus' time was well prepared because of John's work. So the sorrow of losing him would have touched him deeply. How good is it to have fellow people in ministry? If you've ever had a champion alongside you who accentuates and encourages the ministry you're in, be it church or whatever you do, you'll know how important John was to Jesus. So when Jesus heard about the beheading of John, he went to withdraw to a solitary place, presumably to grieve that loss. It doesn't specifically say that, but the context would make sense as that's why he would withdraw. It's a natural response in a time of grief. But the crowds, they followed him. Didn't they know he just lost his cousin? Maybe, doesn't say. But I reckon the loudest cries in their hearts were the cries of wanting to be with Jesus. How would you feel about lots of people demanding your attention at a time when you're looking for solitary time to grieve? And so in the middle of his grief, he allowed himself to be interrupted. He had compassion on the crowd and he ministered to them. Not only did he minister to their spiritual needs, but he ministered to the physical needs. And and as Tara preached uh, three weeks ago, he performed the miraculous feeding of the multitude. And he ministered to their physical needs as well. So in his deep time of sorrow and grief, he gave more than was required. Now we all know that Jesus is God. So we might be tempted to think, yeah, but he's got all the resources for coping. But he was also human. And he experienced the demands and the stresses of a normal human physical body and mind. He experienced all the emotions of grief and sorrow, of tiredness, of the need to be alone, because that's what he was trying to do, and to regather his thoughts and his energy. If the grief of losing John hadn't already drained him, then the demands and the needs of the people at the end of that day will have left him feeling completely wiped out. So at the end of that day, he puts his disciples in a boat to cross the lake, and in tiredness and sorrow, he goes up the mountainside. He draws aside an opportunity he lost earlier that day when he was trying to find that solitude. He needed those moments on the mountainside to stop and reflect and be ministered to by the Father. There are times when we need to push through. Like the moment when Jesus ministered to people in need, even when we're weary. And I do believe that God will give strength in those moments. Strength over and above what we naturally possess. But there are also times that we really do need to pull aside and allow ourselves to be ministered to. 
If Jesus, the Son of God, needs to be ministered to, then so do we. It's not a sign of weakness, but a sign that we are modelling our self-care on the Son of God. That point has touched home for me recently because at the time I was writing this, I wasn't taking the time when I needed to. It hit me that even Jesus stopped doing the important stuff to do the important stuff. He stopped the important stuff of ministering to others to do the important stuff of being ministered to, of spending time with his Father. So I'm not speaking to you today out of a sense of having perfected this. Far from it. Came across this sentence in something that I was reading about Jesus at the end of that day. It says this, He made room in his bustling timetable to be separated from everyone else and be with the Father. Alongside our calling and ministry must equally be an intention to make room in our bustling timetable to be with the Father alone. If we don't, the timetable will consume us and we'll lose touch with God. I wonder what Jesus thought and prayed about on that mountainside. Perhaps he was remembering the growing up times with his cousin, maybe having a smile at the, some of the antics they might have got up to. Perhaps he was thinking about the crowd that day and wondering and praying that what they experienced would transform their lives from that day on. Maybe he was thinking about the disciples at that moment pulling really heavy on those oars in the face of wind, of strong winds. But perhaps the event of John's death would have brought into sharp focus the reality of what was coming for him soon, his own death. You've got to wonder what Jesus thought about when he looked at Peter. If we were to describe the disciple Peter, based on his actions up to this point, and what we know about him afterwards, I wonder what words we'd use. Brash, headstrong, idealistic and impulsive, a risk-taker, a rough diamond, knucklehead. Peter sees Jesus walking on the water towards him and he goes, I'll have what he's having. Now given Peter's track record in Scripture and how well the disciples would have known him, I can just imagine them going, here we go again. How spectacularly is he going to fail this time? And Peter gets a bit of criticism at times for his failings. But let's not forget that he's the only one who got out of the boat. He's the only one who was willing to risk looking foolish and to risk looking very, very wet. But despite his short-lived water-walking career, he was more successful than anyone who stayed in the boat. We've talked a lot over the last year about getting into the boat. And of course, that's a figurative way of saying we're all together on this journey as a church. But there will be times as we sail together that we need to get out of the boat, not in the sense of departing from our vision, but in the sense of stepping out and trusting God. Mm. Matt McInnes preached a sermon in, back in April on finding God's calling, and he reminded us very clearly that God, following God's call is not simple 
nor easy. If it were, we wouldn't need to trust God. Agreeing to follow God's call on our life doesn't suddenly drop every resource into our lap. So when Peter stepped out, he didn't suddenly have a life raft under his feet. He didn't suddenly have webbed toes that he could paddle madly like a duck to stay afloat. He wasn't given speed the three times that of Usain Bolt or oversized feet to cope with the physics of walking on water. All he had was trust in Jesus, and he did it. None of the other disciples begged Jesus to call them out, but Peter wasn't your ordinary disciple. He made a lot of mistakes, but he also tried a lot of things and succeeded, even if it was only for a moment. So when we weigh up the risks of something that Jesus might be calling us to, what do we tell ourselves about the risk of failure? Do we allow that fear of failure to hamstring us from getting out of the safety of our boat? I like feeling safe. I don't like feeling out of control. So that's going to be a problem if Jesus is calling me out. Jesus knew all of Peter's previous failings. And he would have known all the disappointments that were still to come. And yet he still reached out his hand and said, come. If we look at Peter through Jesus' eyes, we won't count his past failings against him, nor do we hold against him the future failings that are going to come. Instead, we reach out our hand and say, come. Who are the Peters in your life? those who maybe haven't lived up to our expectations, who are stumbling around a bit without purpose, but who are needing a word of encouragement. Maybe a simple come, let's go get coffee. Come, let's go and have a chat. What will you say to them? Later in Matthew 16, Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah, and Jesus replies, on this rock, will I build my church? Now, if we were to choose somebody to be a foundation stone of a new organisation, in this case, the church, who would we choose? Imagine Jesus posing the question to the rest of the disciples. They'd probably all put up their hands and say, I vote for not Peter. Who would want somebody so unpredictable and risky endangering the future of the church? And yet possibly the disciple with more defeats and failures than the rest of them put together became the rock that Jesus built his church on. Who does that give hope to? <laughs> does me. So where did Peter turn when he was sinking? Well, he looked to Jesus. And he said, Lord, save me. Where do you turn when you start sinking? I tend to become anxious and fearful of the situations around me. I know that I haven't always turned my face to Jesus. And I haven't said, Lord, save me. What if I had? How much anguish could have been saved if I'd said, Lord, save me in the first moment? And how many of those moments have we experienced where we need to cry out to God? When Peter cried out, didn't say Peter when Peter cried out, 
Jesus didn't say, whoa, buddy. How many times do I have to keep on doing this? No, Jesus, knowing Peter's past failures, knowing what was to come, he still reached out and said, come. The story's not about people deliberately rejecting Jesus. It's more like a picture of a parent whose toddler is learning to walk. They don't get angry or belittle the child who stumbles as they're learning to walk. They reach out a hand and help them back up. Get them back on their feet. And one day after many falls, they master walking. You notice how I read that part of the scripture? I didn't read it as, you have little faith, why do you doubt? I read it as a parent tenderly encouraging the child, you have little faith, why did you doubt? In my work as a community development worker at the Neighbourhood Trust, I meet a lot of people, many who are sinking in their situations. And I'm not there to point out what they're doing wrong, nor am I there to explain how miserable they are because they've con they're consumed by their circumstances. They already know that. I'll give advice and support as needed. But most importantly in my role, I get to be the feet and the hands of Jesus. A young dad says, I need help. And I reply, come, let's get a coffee. And we talk about the challenges of parenting. I've been through those years of toddlers, so I've got a few stories to tell. A man who's come out of gang culture, prison, surrounded by drug and alcohol abuse and violence says, I need help. So I go and sit with him and talk. He tells me I'm his only friend, his only true friend. That's not saying I always get it right. They're just a couple of examples of me being able to reach out to the Peters in my life. And I sometimes wonder, what would it look like if they came to faith? Those headstrong, impulsive, rough diamonds, some of them knuckleheads. If I look at them through Jesus' eyes, I can imagine them as rocks on which Jesus will continue to build his church. If the miraculous was to come to them in their low points, what kind of testimonies would they have to share that would bring many others to faith who I could never reach? Do you realise that Peter walked on water twice that day? How else did he get back to the boat after Jesus lifted him up? Just because you think you've failed at something once doesn't mean you can't be redeemed. Imagine the look on the other disciples' faces as Peter walks back to the boat with Jesus. Yeah, boy. <laughs> he's, he's just chuffed. And you know, the seas were still choppy at that moment because it didn't calm down until they were back in the boat. So Jesus didn't save Peter from the chaos. He saved him to give him strength to get through it. And that's what I've been experiencing over the last few months. When I agreed to do the sermon, I was in a good place. <laughs>
And then there's been a lot of chaos, a lot of choppy seas. And I'm not out of it yet. But Jesus said, come. And I'm walking back to the boat. So as soon as Peter and Jesus rejoined them and the rest of the disciples, they worshipped Jesus. Oh, truly, you're the son of God. But they only did that once he was in the boat and everything had calmed down. How easy is it to trust when we're safe? But how challenging when we're in the thick of it. So soon after seeing the victorious miracle of feeding so many people, they sank to the bottom of the boat in fear for their lives, forgetting that Jesus had put them in the boat and dismissed them to go to the far side of the lake. If Jesus' word could change five loaves and two fishes to feed a multitude, surely when he puts them in the boat and dismisses them to the far side of the lake, that means they will get there, despite what happens. But they lost their faith. And before we point the finger and say how faithless that seems, what miracles have we ignored from our past that should be giving us a confident, confident hope that Jesus will do it again? If we look at the disciples through Jesus' eyes, what do we see? We see a band of faithful disciples who will go on to change the world, bar one, and many of them will die for their faith rather than renounce it because their conviction in the person was, of Jesus was so absolute. At that moment, in that boat, they weren't living like that. But Jesus saw beyond that. If it was all that the disciples would amount to, then the task of building the church was going to be a fairly grim one. But this bunch of followers, some uneducated, some despised by society, some riff-off merchants, some smelly fishermen, Sorry, John. <laughs> Some fearful and cowering and one knucklehead. This bunch of followers, when surrendered as clay in the master's hands, were transformed into followers without fear of what people could do to their bodies because they were so convinced of the good news of Jesus. And that's transformation, isn't it? Guess what? Jesus sees you the same way. Right now, you might be cowering from chaos around you. It feels like wind and waves that are about to rip you apart. You may only be worshipping Jesus when it feels safe. You may even be scared of him as the disciples were when they first saw him walking on water. And that's okay because here's the good news. That's not the end of the story. Those disciples were no different to us. We look at them on this side of history and go, what heroes. But on that day, in that boat, in their fear, in their faithlessness, in their forgetfulness of Jesus' words being dependable, in their personal experience of the miraculous work of Jesus, 
they were no different to us. We probably do have a knucklehead or two in here as well, I'd, I'd imagine. <laughs> Thank God for that. Jesus needs and uses all sorts to reach all sorts. If the band could start making their way. It's probably a number of ways that you, you might identify with the story. Maybe it's Jesus. You're grieving and tired and needing to find solitude and to spend time with the Father to be ministered to. Maybe you're looking at the people around you and seeing them with Jesus' eyes of compassion, ready to serve them, but maybe a bit lost about how to do that. Maybe you're thinking about the Peters in your life, possibly getting a bit fed up with them, but knowing how Jesus responds, you have a new sense of being Jesus' hands and feet to them. Perhaps you identify with the other disciples. Are you fearful of the chaos around you? And do you need to be reminded by Jesus that he promised you would get to the other side, regardless of what chaos blows in? Do you like the safe and the comfortable? There's definitely times that we need to feel secure. There are times that Jesus needed to be secure and, and spend time with the Father. But if we spend our whole life in the bottom of the boat, we'll miss out on so much. As risky as it may seem to get out of the boat. Do you identify with Peter? A risk taker. Desperate to try things, but it's not always refined. How do you handle failure and knockbacks? Maybe you're not phased, with them, phased by them, but you need to see victory around you again. Maybe you need to walk on water again. Maybe you're a Peter who's sinking because you have taken your eyes off Jesus, even momentarily. Well, I know a beautiful prayer you can pray that's full of theological soundness and strength and it goes like this Lord, save me now those three words are not magical, they're not a formula you might have your own words for that might just be help and maybe you're here today and you've never prayed Lord save me Jesus doesn't promise that hard times will disappear so becoming a Christian is no guarantee of a sweet, cozy life free of all hardship. Even Jesus' followers experienced hardship. But what he does promise is to be with you through all situations, giving you hope and purpose in the middle of them. And he did it for his closest followers and he can certainly do it for us. So you'll know what business you need to do with Jesus. I think we'll probably do as we've done in the past. If you've got your own business to do with Jesus, do it in your seat. Have some time over there if you wish to. But if you'd like someone to pray with you, come over this side so that we know who wants to be prayed for. Let's, let's close in prayer. God, I thank you that the story we read today is not the end of the story for those disciples. The end of the story is one of victory. And these were a bunch of toddlers in the faith learning to walk. Help us to see 
and remember what miracles you've done in our lives in the past so that we have hope and strength for the future. And Lord, if there's anyone here who's never experienced the hope that you can offer, I pray, Lord, that you're stirring in those hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen.